0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: When you're an athlete and you have a coach, the premise is not like, hey, you're broken. I'm going to heal you. I need to fix you. Something's wrong with you. Yeah. No, right? You make a team and the co- the premise of the relationship is, you're good. I'm going to make you great. Yeah. Right. And so I love that idea of, you know, when you're working with a client, Hey, you're coming to me, you're a whole and you're an intact whole person, right? You're not broken.
2: Uh
1: You have all the tools in you to take care of yourself and to, to, you know, take care of your life, I'm going to give you and help you develop the tools and the skills to take it to a higher level, huh. right? To perform at a higher level. Yeah. It's very different. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a different contract, you know, between two people.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com. Sasha, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: Oh my gosh, thank you for inviting me on.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So, I funny enough, I was trying to figure out how I was introduced to you. I know that somebody wrote in. I don't know if it was a publicist or somebody, but they told me about your work. And when I went and read your about page, I think what got me was the fact that your work was rooted heavily in research. And I'm always, you know, interested in people who do uh, personal development work and you know self improvement work that is is largely based in um, research. So uh, we will get into all of that, but. Before we do that, I want to start with a question that I don't think I've ever asked anybody before to start the show, and that is, what was the very first way that you ever made money?
1: Oh my gosh. Um, the very first way I ever made money was, well, besides doing chores in my... I, my, my father tried to pay me to read when I was little.) <laughs> <laughs> which, by the way, now we know from research that that is a deterrent, right? That that creates extrinsic motivation, which is demotivating. Um, so he shouldn't have done that. But I did. I found some like old. I found a hilarious promissory note from when I was in maybe third grade, and my dad was trying to bribe me by chapter. He would pay me by the chapter. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, the first way I actually real, received a paycheck was waitressing.
0: Okay, interesting. Yeah. What did you learn about people and human behavior that you feel impacted your life going forward from that job?
1: Um, It's so interesting. I was a terrible waitress because (laughs) I really was. I was terrible because I would get sucked into certain tables and love and enjoy talking with them and just sort of, you know, I'm a psychologist. that's what I do. I talk to people all the time. Mm. So I would have one table that I loved and then completely neglect the other tables. So that made me a decidedly bad waitress, but I enjoyed it a lot. Cause I would, cause I got to know people who were traveling. I, I was living in actually in Telluride, Colorado, uh-huh. in this as a ski bum. Um, so I, I would get to meet all these interesting people that had come, you know, were coming through town. Uh, and I love that part of it, but I'm sure there were plenty of people who were very frustrated that their meals were taking a long time. To get to them.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, it sounds to me like you were craving connection with the people that you are serving.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that I've always been interested in social science from the, from day one, I've always been interested in, um, Subcultures and why people do what they do, and trying to understand what motivates and what you know, what motivates and drives people has always been something I think is, is interested me from mm-hmm. from the beginning.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I couldn't let the ski bum thing go because uh, I'm an avid <laughs> surfer, so I get uh-huh. this like just absolute obsession with anything that results in that much flow. And it's so bizarre that you brought that up because I was just going back through Stephen Kotler's uh, book, Rise of Superman, this morning to, to kind of see where I could make alterations to my, my day based on some of the things that I had heard him say in an interview. Uh, how long have you been skiing?
1: Oh my gosh, I've been skiing since I can't, I, I don't even remember learning how to ski. But my brother is a, is a surfer, I call my brother Chandler, because, you know, from North Shore, the movie North Shore, mm-hmm. the soul surfer. I yeah. don't know. <laughs> it was an 80s cult classic. Totally. Um, But uh, my I come from a skiing family, and we I just started skiing, I think I was probably three when I first started to ski. And it's just been a huge part of my life. It's a huge part of my husband and my life together, and our kids too. They learned. I think both my kids started skiing when they were about two. So uh, with the little harness, you know, yeah, bringing them down the hill.
0: So you know, one of the things that I've always wondered about, as somebody who learned both to snowboard and surf as uh, an adult at the age of thirty, when you're a kid. Do you have the sort of understanding of the fact that there's this incredibly spiritual and deep side to it uh, that causes this flow? Or is it just something that you see as fun? Like, do you have any sense for why it's so addictive and, and it hooks you so much when you're that young? And how has it changed with time? And what have you learned from skiing that you have applied in other areas of your life, which I realized like three questions in one?
1: Yeah, gosh, it, they're so, these questions are great. Um, I hadn't thought about it in this way. I think the reason I loved to ski so much as a kid was that skiing represented such freedom to me. You know, you go on the mountain and it's this altered universe where your parents basically say, see you later. You know, here's some lunch money. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Here's like, what is like five (laughs) bucks back then, but here's money to get lunch. And then off you go and you're skiing with friends or skiing in ski school, which is I mean, looking back, those instructors were probably like twenty-two years old, right? It's fairly unsupervised, huh. and uh, and the, I never had that in any other area of my life. Where it was just complete freedom to do whatever I wanted all over this huge mountain. It was just such an incredible thing. And I played sports pretty competitively as a child, so it was the one sport I did just for the love of it, uh-huh. um, just for the fun, and. It, I, I think there were, I mean, I have so many thoughts about, um, the, the, the developmental psychologist to me, I have a lot of thoughts about what we're doing with kids and sports nowadays right. that I think is not great. But, you know, we professionalize sports now at such an early age. And that was even happening in the, you know, in the 80s and the late 70s, early 80s too. And, um, but skiing was that one thing that I got to do just for the intrinsic value of it. Mm-hmm. Because it was fun, and it was you know your the feeling of your body going down so fast on the mountain, you, especially when you learn to ski before you even have any fear, right? Mm-hmm. It's just it it's like walking to you. It feels like just part of who you are. That's just a great experience, and I think unfortunately there's two. Th- there's not enough sport is that's exactly what it is right it's play and so and we know so much about positive emotion now um about why human beings have positive emotion from an evolutionary perspective it you know it slows down what we call the thought action repertoire so between the thought and the action there's an emotion and positive emotions slow that down so it's where you find you know it's um it's where you find creativity and, um, and, and broader perspective. And so these activities that help us get into that positive space are so important. Mm-hmm. And often I think when we're playing sports with like a very different mentality around, um, you know, if it's sort of pressured and it's, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have the same effect, Yeah, which is why I think, People get so obsessed with, I mean, surfing, I think is, surfing and skiing seem to be the two sort of lifestyle sports.
0: Uh Well, it's interesting because my, you know, I always tell people, the reason I I, I gravitated towards these sports is because that if my performance sucks on any individual day, it doesn't affect the performance of everybody else that's with me. Uh, Whereas on a basketball court, where I was the most improved player on my seventh grade basketball team, which really just means you're the shittiest player on the team, (laughs) uh i noticed that okay hey,
1: now not <clears throat> in the grit era you can't
0: say that <laughs> I, who knows maybe maybe knowing everything i do about human performance now i might have become a pretty decent basketball player uh but that was what appealed to me so much was the fact that that you know that there was a, a component of it that there was no sort of bar that had to be met in which your performance was measured the only person that you're competing against on a on a regular basis was yourself uh But I'd imagine also that skiing, you you mentioned that this notion of um, skiing before fear had developed. So I had to ask about Mm -hmm. that and um, how that is different as adults and what we can do to navigate taking on incredible challenges, um, you know, when fear has already developed in, in certain areas of our lives
1: yeah I mean i this is I, it's really interesting because I just have no fear with skiing whatsoever, and then I've had friends that have learned later on in life and you can and you watch them and the only difference between a child learning how to ski and an adult learning how to ski i mean th- there is developmental things that change like once we go through puberty it becomes more difficult for us to learn these new skills it just becomes technically harder but the but the main you know psychological difference is an adult is scared. <laughs> a kid isn't scared, right? His kid is falling and getting up and trying it again and, you know, may get a little bit frustrated, but it's just, it, it, they're they're not registering, like, I'm about to die. Mm. An adult is having that thought, right? Yeah. Um, and like, this is a bad idea. I'm going to break a leg. Like they have an entire narrative in their head <laughs> that is creating a lot of fear, which also probably makes it, less fun uh-huh. so you know when we're learning something new you have to really manage your thinking because your thinking is what's creating the emotion of fear
2: uh-huh.
1: right well, so so that's like that, that's like when the, the reason to learn something new as an adult on some level is to go through the process of having to work through the you know the the thoughts that are creating these emotions and
3: that hold us back A lot can happen in the next three
0: years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. So I have to ask you about a, a certain experience that I had based on this. So it was interesting because I had Kristen Ulmer, who's the world's best uh, extreme uh, you know, female skier here as a guest. Oh, wow. And awesome. uh, we were talking about her new book, The Art of Fear. And in our conversation, I told her, I said, hey, I'm actually going to be in your neck of the woods next week for a snowboarding trip. Uh, I, I was going to Utah. So I, I got to you know, uh, spend about a week at uh, Park City. And one of the days we went to Snowbird. Now, I don't know if you've ever skied Snowbird, <laughs> uh, But the place is like Mount Doom, especially on a day when it's cloudy and and grim.
1: Snowbird and Alta are amazing mountains.
0: They really are. And I remember, and I've been snowboarding for probably three years at this point. I'd hit my first black diamonds earlier in the year. And I got up to the top of the mountain at Snowbird, even just like looking up, you know, I was looking at the gondola that day. It was cold. It was windy. The visibility was really bad. Uh, And I just had like a temporary meltdown. Like I just freaked out. And I couldn't push myself up to even stand up on a snowboard, despite the fact that I was doing 35 mile an hour runs the day before. Mm -hmm. What happens in those moments? Like what in the world causes somebody to be that paralyzed when they clearly have had experience with something like this? Like it wasn't it didn't seem rational to me to be that scared.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, let me disabuse you of the idea that human beings are rational. <laughs> we, are, <laughs> we are not rational. I mean, um, yeah, the, the only thing that's happening is you're having thoughts. Like you're having a thought that created that fear and it can be extremely powerful. The the circumstance is essentially the same, right? The the what you were doing was the same. You were skiing the day before, you're skiing today. Mm-hmm. But then all of a sudden you had a flood of You know, you probably had a flood of thoughts. I don't know what they were, but that they were creating paralysis.
0: I can tell you what triggered it. Oh, yeah. I think I I know there was a sign on the gondola um, about speeds. It was it was at the bottom of the lift Uh, Mm -hmm. as people are getting in line for the first, you know, lift first chair of the day. There was a sign that said it was about man, you know, controlling your speed. And um, it was about a guy who was going something like 60 miles an hour and it hit a five year old girl and killed her. And I was like, of all the places you could put this sign seriously.
1: (laughs) Okay. So this is such a good example of what I do. I mean, this is a perfect example of how our brain works. And so, you know, there was a really brilliant psychologist named Albert Ellis and was one of the fathers of cognitive behavioral therapy. And he had a model, which he called the ABC model. So there's an activating event, which triggers a belief and the belief creates a consequence. And I, I use a model like this with my clients. It's, I've, you know, augmented this model, but this premise is the same, um, which is there was an activating event, right? The activating event was you read this sign,
2: mm-hmm.
1: right? And it triggered this thought, oh, I, I could actually kill someone <laughs> by doing this, right? If I'm not in control, I might kill somebody, which is way, the stakes are now so much higher. Mm-hmm. Right, but the truth is, nothing has really changed about the external the, the the event or the sort of you know the externalities of it are not nothing changed. The, you were skiing the same mountain the day before,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and that event with this skier and the girl was had happened had already happened,
2: mm-hmm. right? Yeah,
1: but you didn't have a thought about it, so there was no fear. Yeah, right. The next day, you read something and. Now you have a new thought and the new thought is, you know, oh, you know, if I, if I ski too fast, I could, I could seriously injure myself and I could harm somebody else. Which is, you know, now that as I said, the stakes are, the stakes are raised, which, so it was those, the new thoughts what created the fear, right? Uh-huh. Generated fear. Yeah. So it's really about, but if you are in that situation and you're like, I'm now at the top of the hill and I'm completely paralyzed and I can't get down, uh-huh. right? The the trick is you have to, you're feeling fear. You have to, in the moment, it's hard to do it, right? Yeah. Because right? fear is, can really take over your body physiologically, but you have to pause and asking yourself, what am I thinking that's creating this fear,
2: uh-huh.
1: right? And being able to question your, like, we have to question our thinking. We assume our thinking is rational, but often it's not rational at all.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I had this just Flurry of, of thoughts that suddenly you know flooded my mind, and and one I couldn't get you know I, I literally couldn't push myself up even though I had done it a hundred times the day before, uh, mm-hmm. and then there are those traverses that you have to get which are a pain in the ass on a snowboard because if you lose your speed oh, you yeah. don't make it down, and if you go and I kept thinking okay well this traverse is super narrow if I fall over the edge I'm going to fall off the mountain and die, uh, yeah. and luckily some old guy kind of just guided me down to a point where there was a bit more wide terrain and and from there I kind of got back into my Groove, but i mean it took almost half a day to get back to normal
1: oh yeah i mean i it's uh, our emotions are incredibly powerful but i think one what we forget often is we just assume that our emotions are sort of they're facts like they're they're just they're truths about how you know our feelings are our facts but our feelings are derivative of our thoughts mm-hmm. almost always yeah. i mean you know This is the, some all models are wrong. Some models are useful. Uh This, I think my, this cognitive model is very useful, but there are instances that are, it's not necessarily doesn't work like that where perhaps the, you know, you can put a pencil in between your teeth and turn up the corners of your mouth and you, and then there's, uh, you know, they've done studies to show that that is, it can significantly improve uh, mood. Right. And so, People can, you can physically act your way into feeling better, but more often than not, I would say, you know, most of the time our emotions are derivative of our, of our thoughts. And so learning how to manage those thoughts is absolutely essential.
0: Mm. Uh, one other question about this, you know, the, the, about the skiing piece, uh, which is has been really interesting to me, and I'm trying to figure out why this happens, and and maybe as a lifelong skier, you could you could and a psychologist, you could shed some light on this. Why is it that you get this sort of level of motivation from action sports that? Bleeds into other areas of your life, and, and I'll I'll give you an example. So, prior to surfing, I was incredibly undisciplined, um, couldn't finish most of the things that I've started. Um, very often, picked up new hobbies and and quit within a, a very short amount of time. And over the last ten years, um, as as you know, as a byproduct of becoming a surfer, I'm very convinced that this is the case. I also became a prolific writer, wrote multiple books, developed the habit of writing a thousand words a day, built unmistakable creative. And I've always wondered if the the journey, the fact that these two journeys are parallel is just a coincidence. And since you're a psychologist who is a lifelong skier, I, I, I'm really wondering, mm-hmm. you know, if you can shed some light on this for me.
1: Well, I mean, I I think I wonder, and again, like this is not, um, you know, th- this I'm just my conjecture, but but I would really imagine that for you, surfing really brought. Into a state of flow.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: no I mean, I've heard this. My as I said, my older brother's a surfer. He's just it. It creates this. I, I think the flow state that people get from surfing is so addictive and so, and it's because it's so visceral. It's hard to get yourself into a state of flow, right? I mean, it's it's like this elusive for a lot of athletes. It's an elusive state. So if you're if if that's if if surfing was really helping you get into that. in sports psychology, we call this, you know, in the zone, right? You're so um, where the level of challenge and your skill level are fairly evenly matched. So you're in this, it's a way of aligning and um, organizing your brain, right? So when we're psychic, um, entropy is when our brain is all over the place and it doesn't feel very good. When our brain is, you know, and our mind is kind of aligned to one end, to one focus, it feels great. Mm -hmm. But it actually doesn't feel like anything, which is really strange. It's this strange state where you don't actually feel any emotion. You're not even conscious of feeling anything. And it's in retrospect where you look back and you're like, oh, that was amazing. Mm -hmm. That felt awesome or that was such a great experience. But in the moment, you're so focused on what you're doing that you're not actually conscious of, of your emotional state. And I think more than any other sport, surfing seems to be the one that gets you into that, you know, because you're, you're dealing with some pretty serious natural elements with mm-hmm. water, right? Yeah. So you have to be, you ha- it requires a level of focus that maybe other sports don't. And so by learning to surf, you know, you are inducing this state of flow, and perhaps that had this spill like once you realize that you could get yourself into that state, you know, perhaps it's like craving more of that in every other area. Like writing is definitely flow activity uh, for a lot of people.
2: Yeah, definitely.
0: Interesting. Uh, we'll, we'll come back to some of this because I, I still have a lot of questions about this. But I want to talk about. How you get from sort of you know waitress slash ski bum to developmental psychologist, to how in the world did you get to this point? like what were the significant inflection points and and what led you down this path?
1: yeah that is a that is a good question um i so I had taken a year off between high school and college um and I had gotten in early to school, um, early action. So I had applied early to Harvard. It was my myopic focus was to get into Harvard is what I wanted from the time. I was a little kid. I know that sounds so weird, but I was that, I was that kid. I really wanted to go to Harvard. And when I got in, um, I sort of realized I didn't know what I wanted, what I cared about, what I was actually interested in. My whole life had been focused on the goal and not the journey, not the journey. Um, And once I got the goal, I sort of didn't know what to do with myself. Uh, So I took a year off and I was playing, uh, I was a squash player. So I was training and playing squash. And then I took some time off to go skiing and live in Telluride. But when I got to college, You know, here I was, like I in my for my version of my life, like this was the this was the great pinnacle, like the great achievement. And when I arrived in Cambridge, it was such a letdown, you know, because I didn't really it didn't solve any problems, it didn't really make my life any better, right? It was just like I checked the box, I did it. And I had assumed my whole life that getting, you know, achieving that feat would then make me feel great, but it didn't really work. Right. And now, I mean, now I know why <laughs> it's the way that our brains work. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but that was so disappointing for me to be, you know, here I was in this great, you know, academic institution. And I was just really not that happy. And it was sort of this protracted, you know, face plant, um, <laughs> that was college. And I think when I graduated, from college, I actually vowed I would never go back to school. It's this famous last words, because I ended up going back to a lot more school <laughs> after <laughs> I graduated. Um, but I was—I became fascinated with we what. Okay, so if the externalities aren't going to solve the problem here, right? Like if I'm going to achieve all of these goals and they're not going to make me feel better, yeah. Then what is like? What is the point? Um, and I became so interested in what does it mean to live a good life, a happy life? What does it mean to thrive? What does it mean to, um, you know, how do you put your head on your pillow and, and be proud of your day and feel like you get lived a good day that I, you know, I became completely obsessed with understanding that Uh because it, I, I felt so confused and lost and a mess when I was in college.
0: What, what did you do after college?
1: Um, I went, I worked in, well, so in college, I had wanted to be, I was a social anthropology uh, major, we called it concentration, but yeah, major in college. And I, so this, the subculture I, I was studying was Christian motorcycle ministries. So I traveled around the, you know, US and the West, like the, in Colorado and Texas and and going to biker rallies and did was filming, um, you know, they were ex-outlaw bikers that had had a massive conversion and now were ministering to people at these big rallies like in Sturgis and South Dakota. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, I at that point, I thought, well, I really want to be a documentary filmmaker. That's what I want to do. So, when I left college, I worked in various um, – I worked in – production companies and, and did a lot of uh, film production before. And and then just by total dumb luck, really, um, I had read Marty Seligman's book, who's at Penn, who's this, the father of positive psychology. And I'd read his book, Authentic Happiness. Um, and at that point, after college, I'd hired a coach, which by the way, like, two, it was 2000. 2001. Nobody even knew what a coach was. Yeah. <laughs> it was like the only coaches that were that anyone you know even thought of were sports coaches. Uh-huh. So the idea of a life coach was totally bizarre. Um, and but I loved working with her because I'd been an athlete. So this idea of you know instead of kind of endless therapy and endless navel gazing and kind of trying to understand the antecedents, the sort of how I'd. Gotten to where I was, um, I loved this idea that we were going to act. It was more future oriented that I could just take myself as I was in the moment and move forward. Right, I didn't have to sort of, you know, reconcile and fix my past. I could just take where I was today and chart the course. And I don't know that entire pair of, like that idea was game changing for me. Cause I thought like, yeah, this is what I, this is really what's going to work for me. Cause I had been in, you know, in therapy and, um, you know, and I, I just sort of felt like I was rehashing over and over again, this, you know, the stories of my past, but not really getting anywhere. Mm-hmm.
0: Interesting. Uh, <clears throat> I'm glad you brought up the coach thing. And then you tied it to, to the fact that you were an athlete because. I realized- oh yeah.
1: She had, so this, my coach is the one who'd recommended that I read authentic happiness and, mm-hmm when I read it, I, it was this idea that like, you know, you, you don't have to roll around it. Like the idea that um, in psychology, right. That we're rolling around in our muck to get clean. Mm-hmm. it doesn't actually make sense. And that, and, and this Marty Seligman was the first psychologist that I had read who was interested in, okay. You know, we, psychology has been traditionally set up to, get you from, you know, the negative end of the spectrum to, to the zero point, right? To cured, okay, healed, right? Mm-hmm. But there was nothing that was about, well, how do you get from zero to the positive end of the spectrum, right? Yeah. What, what does that even look like? That was completely new at that time. Um, and that really resonated with me. And I, and I think, you know, I really took to it. And I, by, and I was saying the dumb luck was that he happened to be starting a master's program. Um, and I just immediately thought like, okay, I I applied for it in secret (laughs) Uh (laughs) because I I couldn't bear to tell my family and friends that I was actually going back on my word that I was never going back to school.
0: Well, don't worry. I actually told people (laughs) that I would never do anything related to the internet for my job, post-business school.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Famous last words.
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, I'm really glad you brought up uh, the, the the fact that you, you understood the value of a coach from having been an athlete. Because I, I you know, I, I meant to ask you about coaches that you had had in high school uh, mm-hmm. from being an athlete and, and the impact that they had on you and what lessons you learned uh, about coaching that um, sort of impacted your perspective from being an athlete.
1: Well, I think that the, I think coaching in the in terms of our psychological health. I deeply believe in it. And I mean, we can go into a whole conversation about like the, how the field, you know, could be professionalized and all of that. But I I think that the idea of coaching to me is a very powerful one because, you know, at any given moment in the United States, I think the statistic is something like 17% of the U S population. It has clinical psychological disorder. Like that's a pretty high number. That's, you know, close to two out of 10 people Mm -hmm. are suffering from some clinical psychological issue that still leaves eight out of 10 people as, you know, what I would call the walking wounded, right. Functional, um, taking care of the sort of daily lives, living, living a functional life, but are still dealing with the condition that all of us have, which is having a human brain. And there's not a psychology, like there hadn't been a psychology that was, addressing the needs of that, of the 80%. Mm -hmm. So the, the sort of what I got out of coaching, like when I was saying, you know, I really took to coaching because I had been an athlete was when you're an athlete and you have a coach, the premise is not like, Hey, you're broken. I'm going to heal you. I need to fix you. Something's wrong with you. No, right. You make a team and the coat, the premise of the relationship is you're good. I'm going to make you great. Yeah. Right. And so I love that idea of, you know, when you're working with a client, hey, you're coming to me. You're a whole and you're an intact whole person, right? You're not broken. Uh-huh. You have all the tools in you to take care of yourself and to to you know take care of your life. I'm going to give you and help you develop the tools and the skills to take it to a higher level, right? To perform at a higher level. Yeah, It's very different. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a different contract, you know, between two people.
0: Definitely. Interesting. Uh, So let's shift gears and actually let's start talking about those tools, but I I think I want to frame it um, in a different way by asking uh, two things. One, Mm -hmm. you had mentioned that, Uh, you thought, you know, the goal of accomplishing the goal of getting into Harvard would make you feel all of these things. And this is, I feel like I've had this conversation with multiple people and I'm still not satisfied with the answer I've gotten. So why do we think that? Like, why do we feel that, uh, when this external thing happens, uh, everything is going to be amazing. So, you know, for me, it's been, okay, when I meet a long-term partner, when my book becomes a bestseller or when I get a publishing deal, you know, and it's funny because the publishing deal happened, the high lasted for, you know, uh, a little bit. And then life got back to normal pretty soon after that. Yep. And yep. I was like, That's exactly great. Right. I'm like, now this void that I thought was going to be filled is still empty. And mm-hmm. so why is that? And what are the tools that get us from being good to being great? And there's one quote that I want to ask you about, but I'll ask you after after you answer this question.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think what happens is that we have a few annoying features of our mind. And one of them is... That well, uh, often our greatest instincts are just incorrect. So we think that um, you know we are going to walk out, and if we are hit by a car and become a paraplegic, that our life is going to be awful, right? That that would be terrible, and and that would make our lives miserable or much less happier than they are now. But that's just wrong, you know. The the data. Shows that when we follow people that have been in catastrophic accidents and have become paralyzed, um, they go through a period where their well-being does dip, but then it comes back to pretty much the set point it was before. Right? Um, you know, we assume that making if you know some distant relative, um, you know, that we didn't know very well passed away and left us with like a hundred million dollars that we would be enormously happy and our life would be forever altered for the better but that's just not true right our instinct is that that's the case but it's not true the data shows that you know we if we inherited that we would be there would be a momentary blip uh, kind of like in a, a well-being boost as you as you said and then it goes back to kind of the same old same old
2: mm-hmm.
1: and what happens is that we this is what we call you know hedonic adaptation that our brain is that we adapt to and habituate to both positive and negative stimuli such that the emotional uh, effect of it is is blunted right over time or attenuated and this is actually great <laughs> it's great that we do this because it means the negative things the tough stuff mm-hmm. we also adapt to that so it doesn't you know, it's not as bad as we think it's going to be. But it means that the positive stuff is not as good as we think it's going to be, right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't have the same well-being, it doesn't have the powerful well-being boost we think it's going to give us. And this is is not in a line, like it's completely contradicts what we're being told in living in a capitalist, you know, society, which we do. We're constantly given messages that, you know, these externalities will make you feel great, right? Like they're always selling the lifestyle,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: right? So, it's completely counterintuitive. So, we assume like, oh, these external things like getting the book deal and, um, you know, having the you know having the relationship that you see on like what at the Zales commercial or whatever right. you know K jeweler yeah. but um, that that's going to make us so much happier but the truth is that you know yes it does for about 2 years um we're in like 2 years marriage increases our well-being and then we go back to our <laughs> normal levels right that mm-hmm. that's it um and so you know it's it's it it really serves us in some ways because the the lows aren't actually as bad as we think they're going to be but then the highs that we assume are going to make us feel great actually aren't as you know great as we think they're going to be. Mm-hmm. And even more annoying about our mind is that we never learn from this, right? So we go we like this this hedonic adaptation that like at every increase of achievement or every increase in our well-being, we adapt to that. It just becomes the new normal, mm-hmm. right? We don't learn from this. So, you know, despite the fact that, you know, I got into Harvard, well, like that that became like the new normal and it wasn't that exciting anymore. Right. Yeah. And I would also imagine, too, is that like your reference group has probably become more high achieving, too?
0: Well, I talk to people like you all day. So my reference group is wildly skewed. <laughs>
1: Right? And so, we don't judge stuff, um, anything in our life. I mean, we don't, human beings, like, our brains don't judge anything on a absolute scale, uh-huh. right? That's not how we judge stuff. We judge ourselves and compare ourselves on a relative scale based, you know, against the most salient reference point. Mm-hmm. So if you have, uh, I mean, this is why they've done these amazing studies where they show that it's always the silver medalist who's most unhappy, mm-hmm. right? It's like, if you look at pictures of people on an Olympic podium, it's really funny. The gold medalist is like beaming ear to ear. And by the way, so is the bronze medalist mm-hmm. and the silver medalist is pissed.
0: <laughs> it's so and funny all- you say that, um, Sorry, I, I'll, I'll let you go back to it. But I was just yeah, thinking I, think, I missed all state band by one chair when I was a freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. And that was my worst possible outcome. I was like, I would rather be dead last and had no shot at all than being the first alternate. They took three and I was number four. Yeah,
1: right. And the reason why is because if you were dead last. I didn't have a chance. Well, yeah, your most salient reference point was the people around you. Yeah. Like everybody,
0: I still remember the name know, of like, the guy who beat me, too. To this day,
1: of course you do, right? (laughs) Exactly right. And um, by the way, I'm sure if they did, you know, if they were looking at Olympic medalists, and you know, uh, they would probably the person who's in fourth place is also probably really pissed, yeah, you know, and really unhappy. But for the bronze medalist, the most salient reference point is I'm I got on the podium. Like Mm -hmm. I almost didn't get on the podium, right? So they're thrilled. They almost were in fourth place and aren't going to get a medal at all. But for the silver medalist, the most salient reference point for the silver medalist is losing the gold. Mm -hmm. Right. So objectively speaking, the gold medal should be the happiest and the silver medal should be second happiest. And then the bronze medal should be the least happy, right? That's what we should see, but that's not what our brains do. That's, not how the human brain works right we we have you know we compare ourselves to our past our past performances and we compare ourselves we you know socially and the social comparisons are you know they're not objective Mm -hmm. they're not based on an absolute scale so the higher you the more you achieve then the smaller you're kind of the group that you are of people that have achieved around you, you know, like you're you're comparing yourself to those people. So, like the the bar is always being raised.
0: Yeah. So, how do we deal with the fact that these reference points are constantly changing without losing our minds?
1: Mhm. Well, this I mean, I this is why I, there's a couple tricks you can do. Um I think you know, being very deliberate about um your experiences and making sure that you do things that are, you know, awesome and fabulous and amazing, and then also deliberately staying in things and places that aren't as nice or going to visit places that aren't as like fancy or highbrow, right? Like you you give yourself kind of high and low. This is the, you know, the value of maybe going camping and being without for a little bit, right? Like that resets your reference point. Like you want to constantly be doing things that level set, that kind of bring that reference point back down. So it's not this ever increasing, you know, standard. So like the first time, um, I mean, I think traveling on an airplane is such a good example. Mm-hmm. We're all so annoyed about airline travel it's like if you ask Lewis and Clark how they would feel about getting on an airplane and traveling like an hour to get something right. that took them a year to do right and you're like that would be the best thing on the world right like there's there would be nothing better than being able to board an airplane and arriving you know in, in, in an hour uh-huh. and you're like all disgruntled about being delayed for you know a two-hour delay right Um, But the problem is, is that because uh, we've adapted, right? We have hedonic, you know, the hedonic adaptation. We have adapted to this level of convenience. And so now the two-hour delay is extremely irritating. Mm -hmm. So go on a road trip, like travel somewhere by car. (laughs) It might make you appreciate your next trip on the airplane, even if you are delayed for two hours, right? So you want to be actively doing things that are, like that are bringing that new normal back down, mm-hmm. you know, so
0: they, okay. So we've talked about changing, uh, ref, dealing with, you know, uh, reference points in a hedonic adaptation. What are the other tools that get people from sort of baseline to great?
1: Oh, from baseline. Well, I mean, I think that truthfully, I mean, so, uh, what's really happened is that I spent all of this time studying, you know, health, well being, optimal functioning, human yeah. flourishing. And, there's a lot that we know about what high achievers do, right? Like uh, there's a lot of research out there that shows what's predictive of success and what's correlated with success. Like we know a lot of that, but what I became fascinated with, um, and I would see this with my students at Penn and I would say, I see this a lot with my clients and I would, and I saw this, you know, obviously most salient with myself, but it's one thing to know, how to, you know, what one should do. And it's a very different game to get yourself to do it mm-hmm. as are comp- two different issues yeah. completely. And I thought that positive psychology had so much to offer in terms of, um, you know, it's, I mean, the descriptive research and, um, of understanding like what zero to 10 looks like, um, and is, I mean, it's, just blown up in the last 20 years our knowledge of um of sort of you know in a in a nutshell like what's right with people is so much greater but that's completely different than the science of behavioral change like how do you get actually get people to do it i mean look at dieting right and Mm -hmm. weight everybody pretty much knows how to lose weight it's not a mystery yeah right but the the success rate with diets like three percent mm-hmm right? That is not promising.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: It's not, the, there's not a knowledge gap. That's not the issue, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's a, it's a mindset gap because you're the, it's not the, you know, the technical stuff is solved for. We know what you do, right? right. We know what you need to do. The question is like, how do you apply that and actually get the results uh-huh. and get and make, lasting change. Like it's complete. It, it's a totally different game. So my interests really shifted. Because I, you know, if you go to Penn and you teach at Penn in the positive psychology program, it's like a happiness Olympics.
0: <laughs> you know, I know, because like, a lot of those people have been guests here. So <laughs>
1: <laughs> right? Like everybody is, the well-being is extremely high, right? Everybody is like there's there I might even say that there's some pressure to be like you know, high affect, have high affect. All right. Um, so, but, but I would, I found that a lot of my students over the course of the year would, were having trouble applying what they were learning. Mm. And that, to me, that's a completely different issue. It's like the, the whole question of behavioral change. Like that's the, that's a very tricky nut to crack.
0: Do you think we've cracked it?
1: I think there are some, um, you know Robert Kagan at Harvard, I think, has done some amazing work in his immunity to change model. Um, but I, yeah, I think this is, in, in my opinion, this is the more underdeveloped area, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I, think, and this is one of the reasons why um, I think self help can be self help can be unhelpful sometimes for a lot of people. I think self-help can end up being a little bit like diets going on a, di- you know, the oh. diet world, where you have like a 3% success rate because you're, you know, people become self-help junkies and we're reading all these books and not able to actually apply them. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that actually ends up leave, leaving, people feeling worse.
0: Yeah. So how do you, I mean, how do people start to bridge that gap? I, I'm guessing that's the question that's on everybody's mind.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the way that you have to bridge the gap is, and it's it's not, you know, it's not sexy, it's effortful, but mm-hmm. it, we know so much more about, I mean, I think that the most interesting research that's coming out is about the power of our mind and all the research on mindset. There's a amazing, you know, researchers at Stanford, um, uh, Carol Dweck research alia Crum, who've done incredible stuff uh looking at the power of our minds i mean it, it changes um i mean it physiologically changes us our, our minds us. i mean there's all the placebo um, research mm-hmm. as well but you can apply the same rigor in um managing like learning how to manage your mind and Changing your mindset as you can in any other thing, right? So if you're if you're an athlete and you're uh, you know t- training for any sport and you're perfecting your let's say your tennis player and you're perfecting your swing, right? You have to apply the same rigor and practice in ma- learning how to shift and manage your mindset because there's you're, we're always a thought away from changing our life. Like the thing that holds us back is you know we have. We have a mindset. There's a competing commitment, right? That you're, 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 there's some kind of battle going on in your mind where you, you want to make this change, you earnestly want to do it, yet can't seem to get yourself to apply it. Mm-hmm. Which is, like, you know, often my clients would describe this as like, you know, feeling like they're living in Groundhog's Day. Yeah. Like, how am I, how am I here? Right? Like, their their New Year's resolutions are laminated. It's the same, thing every, <laughs> the same thing every year, right? And the, what, what actually, you know, lasting behavioral change is always an expression of a mindset change. You have to believe something different to do something different, mm-hmm. right? And I think often we try to solve the problem by just changing the action, changing the behavior, but that requires way too much willpower for us. And, you know, willpower is great in short in the short term, but it's not a lasting solution in, on the in the long term. Yeah. You know,
0: interesting. I think about, it, you know, how I developed the habit of a writer. And I think just deep down, I was like, I had the belief that, OK, this will lead to something good because uh, I already knew that, you know, just, you know, the ha- the fact that I semi developed the habit had already led you know quite far.
1: Absolutely. like, and And I think this is what people really forget is. You know, we, we have this whole world of positive affirmations, but often those positive affirmations are s- too far away from us, right? Uh-huh. So we it's like going from, you know, uh, I hate my body to I love my body, or from like I'm a failure to I'm a success, whatever, right? Like it's way too far. Yeah. And so what ends up happening is you don't, you, you, the, that, you know, the affirmation or like the new thought, you don't believe it. Mm hmm. So you're saying it to yourself, but there's a voice in the back of your head that's like, yeah, well, that's not true. Yeah, <laughs> You know, like, uh, uh, yeah, right. And so it ends up backfiring because it, all it's really doing is it's reinforcing your, your, you know, the old mindset, like the existing mindset, which is I'm a failure. Yeah. Definitely. So what I, I think, you know, what hap- what you need to do is find, more neutral thoughts that can lead you to bridging the gap between like the you know the operating system that you're in now and the operating system that you want to have which is I'm a success mm-hmm. but you've got to you've got to traverse that kind of what I call the river of doubt
2: Wow.
0: Um, Okay. So a couple other questions come from this. Uh, This is a quote that I saw on your website. I was reading your about page and this caught my attention uh, immediately. You said it's malpractice for a therapist to see you for 15 years without moving past the same place you started in. If your friends and family don't notice a change in you, I'm not doing my job. And yet, yeah, this is our status quo in society is years and years and years of people in therapy uh why is why is that and you know why do we why do we find that it takes so long to to get a change i'll give you an example um you know i had a, a breakup that made a mess of my head and i felt like literally every week i would go to the therapist's office so i'm like why the hell is this taking so long like i should be over this this happened a month and a half ago and it took six months yeah so why is that like why is this our status quo?
1: I think that we take our thoughts way too seriously. I mean, we have, I, I I stand by that hundred percent. Like I, I just think that we have this idea that we're supposed to be excavating every single past hurt and injury and trauma in our life. And that this is somehow going to explain like how we've become who we are and how we've, you know, why we continue to sabotage ourselves and all that. And, I do think, you know, yes, it's interesting and it's important to sort of understand the biography of our belief, current belief system. Like, how did we get here? How did we develop these beliefs? It doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? We have cultural um, messages and then messages from our family of origin. Like, that's all important, but it's important to understand, you know, how you develop them. But that's... um, more of a theoretical exercise because the, what wh- where the rubber meets the road is oh, I have this current belief system, like you know, whatever that may be that's holding you back. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's just pick you know, the most common one <laughs> at the end of the thread, it's always some not enoughness, right? Not smart enough, not pretty enough, not you know, good enough, um, not funny enough, not clever enough. I mean, you name it, like it's always some version of not enoughness that's Mm -hmm. at, for for most people, that's like at the core, right? And unless you're dealing with that belief, then that's like, you have to deal with, you have to root those beliefs out, right? Like that's what you're working. You got to work at that level. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's always a reason why we developed those beliefs, but you know, I think when we come to an understanding that this is like a pretty universal human experience, I mean, this is the universal human experience, right? That we, um, we all struggle with these, with our, our irrational minds. You know, we're all screwed up, fallible, irrational creatures. And our thinking um, pretends to be true, but very often our thinking is completely baseless and it makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Right, so we have to be get, become really good at questioning our our thoughts. And I think what happens in therapy is sometimes we end up massaging our thoughts, mm. like you know, like we dig deeper into them as if we we like we reify them and get, and make them more important than they actually are. It's like we have total freedom to believe whatever we want about ourselves. Yeah, we can like we can genuinely believe whatever we want about. Our identity, who we are, what we stand for—you know—I mean, we can. There's no rules, and in the the like the the buffet, the smorgasbord of of thoughts in front of us. Very often, we pick up the worst ones, and we hold on to them with you know, we hold on to them dearly. It, but it, when you actually look at it that way, like we have this incredible freedom, mm. right? It's, it's almost like it's, it's our brain, like, can't actually compute that we have this kind of freedom. Uh-huh. Uh,
0: so two questions for you uh, that I want to finish with. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you're a parent. And <laughs> as a parent and uh, developmental psychologist, what impact has uh, the work that you do had on the way that you're raising your kids? Um mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, like the reason I ask this is because I'm under the impression that if I had parents who are completely well-educated and super conscious about this stuff, I would have turned out as a normal, fully functional, like, high-achieving, you know, <laughs> off-the-charts human being. <laughs> right. Um, and you being in the position that you are and being a parent, I'm really interested in what you have to say about this. And what advice do you have to parents who are listening?
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I couldn't go into I mean. For a brief second, I thought maybe I would work with parents on working with them, you know, consulting them on parenting and developmental psychology. And I, no way, <laughs> no way, because I am a parent and that's just way too much. It's like, you know, too much. So if you're talking about judging yourself, like I, the, my comparison group was best practices. That's like, a, that's deadly. So I was like, I can't do that. Yeah. Um, because you know you in the we're parenting in real time and that means we all make mistakes and and you're dealing with kids with different temperaments and different personalities and what works with one child is the you know the opposite of what works for the other one so i mean i think ultimately what we're hoping to create is psychological flexibility um and and psychological fitness and that means that you can pick yourself up from what goes wrong and learn something from it and move on mm-hmm. right because there is no perfect it just doesn't exist there's no perfect parenting there's no perfect um living there's no perfect living of life it doesn't exist and um and i and i think that sometimes like we professionalize parenting I mean, I think this has occurred in like the last 25 years, we've sort of professionalized parenting, which leads to this false assumption that you can somehow be the perfect parent and you can do this perfectly. Like, that's crazy. No. And all all of the hurt, all of the trauma, all of the mistakes, like all of that has just enriched my life has made me um, have more empathy, has, has like made me see something in a deeper more full way. It hasn't been easy it's not, you know, certainly um, you know, life is difficult for sure and and the full spectrum of emotion is what we sign up for as human beings, right? Like that's, that's what we you know, on the other side of love is loss, like you can't have one without the other. So I I think that it's, it's a mistake to not allow ourselves to just have a human experience, which means we screw up all the time. But what we want to have is develop greater, you know, as I said, like greater um, psychological flexibility and fitness so that you're able to kind of recover from those setbacks or recover from those experiences more quickly mm-hmm. and gain something from them more quickly. Wow. Right. And not, and not rather than ruminating, um, in them and sort of feeling like, and, and which, you know, makes us feel. And when we're feeling bad, normally, you know, that feeling bad leads, <laughs> leads to a lot of dysfunctional behavior.
0: No doubt. All right. Two last questions. Uh, yeah, this is, Something that I've been asking a lot of people because it is uh, likely going to be the subject of my next book, um, and also was uh, the subject of an article that I wrote recently. For those of you who haven't checked it out, what do you think we should have learned in school but never did?
1: Oh my gosh! I mean, unequivocally, how to manage your mind. I mean, it is it is blows my mind that we are taught arcane things that we'll never use. And the one thing that will change your life is understanding how to shift your mindset. We do not address this, right? It's it can, it's it makes no sense to me at all. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the one thing that we, we that everybody should be pulled aside in high school <laughs> and said, so, "Okay, let me just share with you how you actually can change your mindset, and you can." change a thought that doesn't serve you very well and isn't getting you very good results. And we can teach you how to shift the mindset. Like that's profound. I mean, especially when you look at Angela Duckworth's research on, you know, self-discipline outperforms IQ Mm -hmm. in terms of high school achievement. Um, And and what is self-discipline? It's like managing your mind. Mm -hmm. Right. So being able to direct your brain to serve you is an essential skill that we don't learn. And I think it's a shame. Mm.
0: Wow. Well, this has been amazing. So I have one last question for you, which is how we finish all of our interviews. The unmistakable creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Oh my gosh, what do I, I think it is that makes someone unmistakable? I think it's just that that same thing, that that's ability to sort of pick yourself up no matter what, right? Like no matter what's happened, no matter how public the face plant, to be able to pick yourself up. That to me is the most remarkable human quality. Awesome.
0: Well, I think that makes a, a really fitting end to what has been a very interesting and riveting conversation. Where can people find out more about you and your work?
1: Uh, on my website, which is Dr. Dr. Sasha Hines, so D R S A S H A H E I N Z, and on uh, Instagram, same handle at Dr. Sasha Hines. Yeah.
0: Awesome. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating?